to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read verse 24 to verse 27. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out, on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this powerful text this morning, we pray that you would instruct us and you would enlighten us and you would teach us through your word. I pray, Lord, that what I say this morning would be your words. I pray that, Father, we all would have ears to hear what you have inspired in this scripture text. I pray, Lord, that what Gabriel came to share with Daniel and what he wanted Daniel to understand, that we would also understand. And I pray, Lord, that this would be to your glory and your purposes in the world. Lord, thank you for giving us this amazing passage. And I just pray that this morning we would just be struck by your presence and your awesome power and your love for mankind. So do a work this morning through this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's probably not another prophecy in the Bible that has been so sliced and diced in every conceivable way as this prophecy that we just read this morning. There are so many different interpretations of this passage, and interpreters have tried to understand it in every conceivable way that you possibly could. Well, what if we thought of it this way? Or what if we thought of it this, this way? Or what if we, you know, you know took this number figure and, and we put the stopper here and we put the end point there? And there's all sorts of disagreement about this prophecy. You have the Jewish interpretations, and of course that's a, a broad umbrella. There's lots of branches there. But the Jews, they disagree with the secularists, how the secularists will interpret this passage. Secularists being people that don't believe in the supernatural, people that will read this passage and try to understand it without believing in the miraculous or in the prophetic. The Jewish people will disagree with the secularists. They'll also disagree with the Christians. The secularists will disagree with the Jews and the Christians. And the Christians will disagree with the 
Jews and the secularists and even other Christians. So we're dealing with a lot of different interpretations. The surprising thing about this prophecy, and the, well, the surprising thing about the situation with so many different interpretations about this prophecy is that this prophecy is actually not that difficult. And that's, I know, a pretty big claim for me to make. But it's not just me who's making it. Other commentators will also make that and point out that the prophecy is rather straightforward. It's not apocalyptic. There's not a bunch of symbols that you have to understand. He speaks very plainly about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He speaks very plainly about when it's going to happen. And so it's surprising that there's so many interpretations, even though the prophecy is quite straightforward. And what this does, or what this means, is it betrays that there's a more serious problem here than just it, that it's not clear. As the Reverend John Stoddard pointed out long ago, there must be some serious causes of doubt and error in the substance of it out of which such manifold and wide disagreements have sprung. So what he's saying is, it's not that the, the passage is difficult, it's that the substance is controversial. There must be something in the message, in the substance of it, that causes all sorts of disagreement. And there is, because there's a lot at stake in this prophecy. For example, for the secularist, What's at stake is their belief that there's no supernatural things in this world, right? So the secularist can't, has to struggle with the substance of this prophecy because if you just take it at its uh, plainly, you're going to see that God has foretold the future. This is an evidence of the miraculous and of the supernatural. So there the secularist has a problem. Of course, the Jews have a problem with this as well. Because, as we will argue as Christians, if you just take it in the plainest sense, then you're going to see that Jesus Christ is the <laughs> And so, it, it's not difficult. It's in the substance of it that the Jews have a problem with it. And therefore, they try to find other ways to interpret it than in the plain sense. But even among Christians themselves, in the substance of it regarding the nation of Israel, there's controversy regarding how you interpret this passage. Because if you interpret one way, that means one thing about the nation of Israel. And if you interpret it another way, that means another thing about the nation of Israel. So there's something controversial in the substance of it, even for us as Christians. We, when we approach these texts, we have invested presuppositions that control our interpretations. If you want, if we're going to understand the Bible, the key to understanding the Bible is to First of all, make sure we're constantly evaluating our presuppositions. We're not just taking things for granted, but we're questioning, you know, should I, should I approach this text with the understanding that I am approaching it with? This presupposition, is it a, is it a true presupposition? Is it, a, is it founded? So we need to evaluate our presuppositions, one. And then two, we need to do what's called exegesis. And exegesis means that when you're reading the Bible, you are looking carefully to see what the Bible is saying, what the text is actually saying. Exegesis means you're getting out of the text the message. You're not putting into it what you want to be there. That's called eisegesis or asegesis. That's putting into it. So we, you, exegesis is concerned about being faithful to what the actual text is saying. So the key to understanding the passages in the Bible like this one, evaluate your presuppositions 
And two, exegesis, faithfulness to the text, rigorous faithfulness to the text. We only believe what the text allows us to believe. So this morning, we're not going to evaluate our presuppositions. Uh, we've already touched on that a bit in the past, and there's lots more room to do that. Nor will we walk through all the different views that can be said about this passage. There's too many. It would take too long to do that. And frankly, not all of them are even worth our attention. They're, like I said, every conceivable way has been imagined. And that means we can just shave off a whole bunch of them as just uh, exegetically unsound. But what we will do this morning is we'll start by setting forth the four most important interpretations of this prophecy. And then I'm going to proceed to argue for the view that I believe is the most exegetically natural and faithful to the text and not to any system. And I believe there is an interpretation that is faithful to this text. And, I, and I'm going to say that again. I don't think this text is really that difficult to see it's what it's actually saying exegetically. We're going to take two Sundays to look at this passage. There's really too much here. So this morning, we're only going to get as far as verse 26. We're not even going to get into everything in verse 26. But we'll, we're going to look at this prophecy this morning and next Sunday. And we'll hopefully finish it up next Sunday. So what are the four main views that we should be aware of as Christians? They are the secularist view, the Jewish view, or at least the common Jewish view. And then two Christian views, which I will call Christian 1 and Christian 2. And of course, like I said, there's, there's other views, but these are really the main ones that as a Christian you should be aware of. So the secularist view. The secularist view of this prophecy is that this is actually a pseudo-prophecy. This isn't prophecy at all. It was, first of all, it wasn't written by Daniel in the... Uh, in the 6th century BC like it claims to be written. I, mean, I don't know if you remember, we talked about the issue of authorship when we began this study. But basically, the, the secularist says that this book was written in the 2nd century BC at the time of the Maccabees by an unknown author who claimed to be Daniel, and he was pretending to prophesy. So basically he was saying, you know, long ago Daniel wrote this, and lo and behold, in our day it's coming to pass. Look, it's coming to pass. This is a prophecy, but it's actually pseudo-prophecy. It's a phony, false prophecy. And what they think is that the author in the second century is writing about his own time. And so the author is trying to give people in his day hope that in the midst of the Maccabean crisis when Antiochus Epiphanes was desecrating Israel and he put this abomination in the temple and took away the sacrifices, that basically this author is saying, hey, look, God told us about this long before and victory is right around the, the corner. And so the secularists will say that pseudo-Daniel actually was wrong. That, he, that he, he was in error when he gave his contemporaries the idea that the kingdom of God was about to come right after Antiochus Epiphanes. He was in error. Of course, this view is fueled by unbelief in the supernatural. And in order to get from Daniel's day to the Maccabean time, you have to smudge these numbers here in Daniel chapter 9. It, 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 the numbers don't fit. 70 weeks, 490 years. It doesn't bring us to the time of the Maccabees. And frankly, the uh, 
secularists understand that he makes these mistakes, and they're okay with that because they don't believe it's inspired. They say, yeah, he made a mistake. He was, he was not only uh, doing pseudo-prophecy, he was just ignorant of history itself. He thought it was 70 weeks from the time of you know, Nebuchadnezzar to the time of the Maccabees. He just didn't have the information we had today. So that's the secularist position. This, of course, is unacceptable as it has a presupposition that is anti-supernatural, which is without any basis. And there are better ways of interpreting this text than that. We've already talked about the problem with uh, placing the authorship of this book in the time of the Maccabees as well. You can find that sermon online when we dealt with the date. The second view of this text we should be aware of as Christians is the Jewish view. And like I said, there's different branches in Judaism, but here's the, the main Jewish view that's not the, the liberal Jewish view. The liberal Jewish view, they'll go along with the secularists. But we're talking about the, the faithful Jewish view, the, the Jews who believe in God and in the supernatural. And it's interesting that Jews think that this prophecy was explicitly messianic. They used, they used to think that the Messiah, the Prince that Daniel writes about here, is actually referring to the Messiah. But after Jesus came, and after the Christians began to use this text to say that this was pointing to Jesus, Jewish interpretation began to change on this passage, and they began to interpret it not explicitly as messianic anymore. It's messianic in one sense, but the Messiah, the Prince that's pointed out in this text, isn't supposed to be understood as the Messiah. And they changed afterwards. Now the Jews do believe that this is a prophecy regarding the first century and the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD, just as we as Christians believe as well. So that's quite interesting. They do see that the 70 weeks brings us to the first century, and of course in verse 26 where it mentions the destruction of the city and the sanctuary, Jews believe that's what it's talking about. But who's the Messiah, the prince, they say? Well, they say, well, that was the last Herodian king in that time. And when, the, when Israel was destroyed by the Romans in that day, the, the Herodian dynasty came to an end, and that's, of course, true. So they say the Messiah here is Agrippa II, the very same Agrippa that Paul uh, gave his defense before in the book of Acts, actually. That Agrippa was the last Herodian king before the temple was destroyed. And so they say, that, that's all this is talking about, is just Agrippa. It's interesting, however, that when it comes to the finer details of this prophecy, most Jewish rabbis will admit that they just don't know what all these details are. They will say that. We just don't really know. Some say this, some say that. I can't really say with confidence what this is. And there's really a sense of... I don't know what this is. This is one of those weird prophecies in the Bible that we don't know. But we know it's not Jesus Christ. We know that. They will say that the events here are basically typical or they're, they're patterns that will repeat and repeat and repeat until Israel finally gets it right. Then everlasting righteousness will be brought in. So they see this as kind of a test that if Israel gets it right, then everlasting righteousness will be brought in. And it's just kind of a pattern that repeats itself. The third view is, the, is what I call Christian One. And Christ, I don't call it Christian One because it's the first Christian view. I just, that's just arbitrary. Now this view, and it's common, 
is that this prophecy is about Jesus Christ and that Daniel with his dates here brings us to Jesus Christ in the first century and to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that there's nothing more future about this prophecy. So from verse 24 to verse 27, that's all talking about the first century and it's all talking about of Jesus Christ. The whole prophecy. Daniel says there's going to be 70 weeks from here to here. It brings us to Jesus. It all goes down right there when Jesus came and died and rose from the dead and the temple was destroyed. And after that, this prophecy doesn't have anything else to say. After Jesus in the first century and the destruction of the temple, this prophecy has been exhausted. That's Christian one. We'll call that the preterist view. Preterist simply means past. That means it's all been fulfilled in the past now. We can read this as Christians and say, wow, this is amazing. It was a fulfilled, it's a fulfilled prophecy, and that's, that's all there is to say about it. Christian 2 is the other view, the last view that we'll, that we'll look at. And Christian 2 is similar to Christian 1. It's important to see that Christians agree for the most, on most of this prophecy. And the Christian 2 view agrees. Yes, Daniel indeed takes us to the, to the first century, Daniel takes us to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is an explicitly messianic prophecy of Jesus. And Daniel talks about the destruction of the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD. That happens all in the first century, just as Daniel prophesies here. However, it's not all talking about the first century. There's still something here in this prophecy that is yet future, even to us today. So that's... Christian 2, which we'll call the futurist position, which, which would be the opposite of the preterist view. Preterist is past, futurist is future. So while much of this was fulfilled in the first century, there's still something future here that has not yet been fulfilled. Obviously, the secularist and the Jewish views are unacceptable to us as Christians. They fail in, as we're going to see, they fail exegetically to, to see the most naturally uh, the natural exegetical way of interpreting this text. We'll look at that this morning. And also, their presuppositions are faulty. No supernatural and no Jesus. So therefore, we have to reinterpret it to get rid of Jesus and the supernatural. Um, as Christians, that's not acceptable. So the answer is going to be found in either Christian 1 or Christian 2. Now, last week, we looked at verse 24. And we talked about how Daniel said that a time, a period of time had been determined by God in order to accomplish certain things. Seventy weeks of years we talked about. So 70 weeks of years, uh, the Jews would think in terms of, uh, of course, seven, a seven-day week, but they'd also think in terms of a seven-year week. And at the end of that seven-year week, there would be a sabbatical year. And what's decreed here is that all these things in verse 24, the, to make an end of sin, to finish transgression, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, that will all be fulfilled when 70 weeks of years is up. So that's the period of time in which all of these things, or by which all of these things will be fulfilled. And we also talked about last week how this prophecy is about the salvation of Israel. If you look at verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for someone, not for nobody, not for anyone who wants it, but 
for your people, Daniel, and for your city. So this prophecy is about the salvation of Israel, and it has a covenant context. If you look at the greater context of chapter 9, this prophecy is an answer to Daniel's prayer. He was praying about his own people. He was praying about his own city. He was asking God to act. He was asking God to do something for his great namesake and, and save his people. And so this prophecy comes along to say, Daniel, your prayer's been heard, and, and, and this is an answer to your question. You, as a faithful believer, know that I'm going to be true to my promises. All of the Old Testament is looking forward to these things. I'm coming to tell you when this is going to happen. What an exciting prophecy. The angel Gabriel comes and tells Daniel when his prayer and all the things that he's been longing for and the prophets have been longing for will come to pass. All will be fulfilled in 70 weeks. It's enormously important to see what this prophecy is about in context. And when you see it in context, you realize this is an enormously important prophecy. It is dealing with everything the Old Testament has been longing for, righteousness for God's people. And we as Christians understand that righteousness, the bringing in of everlasting righteousness and the atonement for iniquity is accomplished through Jesus Christ. And that's what the New Testament is all about. So the Old Testament is longing for this bringing in of righteousness and making an end of sin. And the New Testament is all about that same thing. The New Testament isn't moving on from that topic at all. That's very important. We see the relationship between the old and the new as a relationship of fulfillment, of longing. John Wright in his book, The Kingdom of God, says this, and this is absolutely excellent and important. And I think this will correct, this needs to correct a lot of our about the Old and the New Testament. He says this, the two testaments are organically linked together. They're organically linked to each other. The relationship between them is neither one of upward development nor of contrast. It is one of beginning and completion of hope and fulfillment. That is so important. And I think for many Christians, we have this erroneous view that the Old Testament and the New Testament are related in the sense of upward development. That, you know, the Old Testament was sort of elementary school, or it was kind of, well, in one sense it's elementary school, right? The law is our teacher and our instructor. But that the principles and the lessons and all that, that was kind of needed then, but it's not true anymore. It was um, a temporary kind of primitive way of understanding the world. And then when we get to the New Testament, we, there's an elevation in religion. And now all of a sudden we understand the world in a really true way that the Old Testament people really didn't understand the world of. And we start reinterpreting life and our worldview and our religion. And it becomes very uh, different from the Old Testament. And we, and we base this on, well, it's an upward development. The New Testament moves us forward in the re- evolution of religion. A lot of that kind of thing went on in the 20th century when liberal Christians were trying to understand, you know, the New Testament brings in a whole new way of thinking about God and they just left the Old Testament behind. But as Bright says, no, it's not upward development, nor is it contrast. You're not contrasting. The, the early disciples and apostles were not contrasting with the past and saying the Old Testament was wrong, the New Testament was right. This, the relationship between them is one of beginning and completion. There's a story being told or one of hope and fulfillment. The, the more you see what the New Testament is about, the more you'll begin 
to appreciate the Old Testament as non-archaic and as basically essentially related to the Old Testament. You can be encouraged by both of them. So this is what this, this prophecy is kind of a hinge point. Now look at verse 25 with me. Gabriel says to Daniel, you, so you are to know and discern. Now it's interesting, the, re, the, the repetition of this. Look at verse uh, 22 and 23. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, or you are God's delight. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. There's a repetition here. Gabriel's like, listen up, Daniel. Pay attention. Get this. Understand. The repetition shows us how obviously important this prophecy is and that we too are supposed to understand this. This is not a prophecy we're supposed to not understand. This is not one of those places in the Bible where we as Christians are supposed to say, I have no idea what this one's about. This is the one that we as Christians should be able to say, let's turn there and talk about this and let me show you how awesome this prophecy is. Know and understand. It's really important. And I'd like to encourage each one of you to make it a goal to understand this prophecy. The importance of this prophecy merits our close attention. It's not to be read hastily. It's not to be read without evaluating our presuppositions. It's not to be read just to, to make it fit with our preconceived notions. We should pay close attention so that we may understand and look closely at its details because this is from God and it's important. So let's begin to do that this morning. Verse 25 so you are to know and, un and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So here's an amazing thing in verse 25. And I have this board here. Just I'm not going to be writing anything on it more. But it's just there for sort of a reference. Because what we have here in verse 25, if you look, what we have is a statement that says, from event X to event Y, there will be time amount Z. That's what we have there in verse 25, right? It's really an amazing prophecy. One of the few prophecies in the Bible that actually tells us the exact time something is going to be. This is meant for us to see this and understand it so that when it happens we can see that God really foretold the future. Isaiah 41 says if you're really God's tell us the things that will be so that we can praise you and fear you. I'll tell you God has told us the things to come so that we can fear him. This is not just an intellectual exercise that's fun. When you see that God has actually spoken this and this is God's intention by the way it's not just for us to you know get overwhelmed by this and just say, I don't know what to make of this. He gave it for us to understand so that we will fear him as the God who is real and who speaks to mankind and who does things in this world. That's, that's how you should leave here from this prophecy. 
from x to y, there will be time amount z, an amazing prediction. So we need to ask, what is this x, what is this y, and what is this time amount z? And well, let's look at the text. What is x? What is the starting point? From the issuing of a decree or a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's x. The issuing of a command or a decree or a word to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Notice this is not a word that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Not a word that it will be rebuilt. Because some, some commentators will say, well, the, that's the prophecy of Jeremiah that the city will be rebuilt. That's, the, that's when we should start hitting the clock. You know, that's, when, that's X, when Jeremiah prophesied that the city would be rebuilt. But Daniel doesn't say the word that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but that the word that it, it should be rebuilt, to rebuild it. It's the decree to rebuild it. And you have to put this prophecy in context now. Daniel is praying for Jerusalem because what's Jerusalem at this moment? In, when Gabriel comes to Daniel, what is Jerusalem like at this moment? It's a, it's a salt heap, you know. It's, a, it's nothing. It's gone. The walls are destroyed. It's been leveled to the ground. There's no temple. It's in total ruins. And so Daniel's asking God to restore it. Do something. Act, God, for your namesake. And so the angel says, from the command to restore it, un, that's unto Messiah the Prince, there'll be time amount Z. So the question is, when was the command or the decree or the word to restore Jerusalem? Now, many people think that Cyrus is the one who gave this command. It's important for us to see that this is not Cyrus. And Cyrus is a major figure in the Old Testament, right? Cyrus is the guy that God even calls him Messiah. And God used Cyrus to bring the Jewish people back to their land after the Persians took over the Babylonians. And would you turn with me, please, to Ezra chapter 1? And we'll just look at this. Uh, Ezra chapter 1. And I'd like to point out, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is not the command of Cyrus for the Jews to go back to their land. Ezra chapter 1. And here is Cyrus's decree for the Jews to go back to their land. And I'd like you to notice very carefully what it says. The thing to notice here, we'll look at chapter 1, verse 1. The thing to notice here is that Ezra, uh, excuse me, Cyrus does not give a command for Jerusalem to be rebuilt and to be restored. He doesn't give that command. Verse 1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So what is Cyrus's understanding? God has appointed me to build him a house. That's referring to the temple. 
Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And as you read on in verse 5 to 11, Cyrus actually gives the Jews back the items that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple. He gives them back all the instruments for the temple. So it's very clear that Cyrus is commissioning the people to go back to rebuild the house of the Lord. And what's interesting is you read on in the book of Ezra um, and you see what transpires in that book, they build the house of the Lord. And we don't know whether they actually tried to start rebuilding the walls of the city or whether that the, the nations around them just lied about them and said they were. But it's, at one point, the nations around them freaked out that they were building the walls of the city. And they wrote to the king of Persia and they said, whoa, these Jews are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. You need to stop this. And the king of Persia wrote back and said, the Jews are not allowed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. No. And he put a stop to their production, if, whether they were doing it or not, or whether it was a lie. The point is, Ezra makes it very clear, Cyrus's command was not to rebuild those walls. And it's very important to understand that, because in the ancient world, walls were really essential to the autonomy of a city, to the dignity of a city, to the um, prestige of a city, and to its defenses. And they argue, don't let Jerusalem build this wall because if they do, then they're not going to pay you taxes anymore, basically. They're going to become self-sufficient. They're going to become a great city again if they build the walls. Let them build their temple. Let them do their worship. But don't let them rebuild the walls. But if you remember in Daniel chapter 9, the, the additional comment is made from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And then it says the, the, the plaza and the moat will be rebuilt in distressing times. And of course, there is no moat around Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't have any water that flowed around it. But the, the Hebrew word, we shouldn't really think moat. Uh, the, the, the word means like a trench. And what it was used for was cities that were on a hill would extend their walls by digging a trench. You see, so they'd, they'd build the walls, but they'd also build down into the dirt so that the walls were even longer. So basically, the, you know, the city is this imposing thing that just kind of sticks up out of the out of the ground so the idea here is that the defenses will be built in distressing times and the book of Ezra clearly says no the Persians would not allow the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem in that way they would not allow them to rebuild their walls so it's important to see that it is not until the time of Nehemiah which is much later than when Cyrus gave his command. Almost a hundred years later, actually, does Nehemiah come to Jerusalem. And turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. And what's the book of Nehemiah all about? If you remember, the book of Nehemiah is all about building the walls. Right? And a hundred years later, after Cyrus' command, after... Uh, the Jews have returned and rebuilt their temple. In Nehemiah's time, the temple's already been rebuilt. The Jews have been living there for about a century. And even that 
far removed from when Cyrus gave the command. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1. And uh, look at verse 3. And you'll remember Nehemiah's brother comes to um, Susa, where Nehemiah is, and reports and tells him what's going on in Jerusalem. And look at verse 3. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And verse 4, Nehemiah sits down and weeps and mourns, and he prays, and he asks God basically to do what Daniel's praying. God, fix the reproach against Jerusalem. Just because the Jews have gone back to the land and rebuilt their temple, they're still a reproach. They're still subservient. They're not what they were. God, we've sinned against you. Remember your covenant. So notice how important the walls are in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And so, in the book of Nehemiah, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, this is what chapter 2 shows us, gives Nehemiah the decree or the command or the word for him to rebuild Jerusalem. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and he builds the walls. And you can read that story and it's distressing times, it says. Tom, did you have something you wanted to say? The, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. But it's... It's just as Daniel had predicted that the wall, the plaza, the moat were rebuilt in distressing times. It was not an easy time for them to do. Nehemiah, when he was just doing his survey, his landscaping survey, he had to do it at night in secret so that the nations didn't kind of catch wind of what he was doing. It was all really kind of secret until, bam, they started to do it and then they got attacked and it was pretty, uh, pretty intense. So Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, gives us the command to restore Jerusalem to its former glory, basically, and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And what's amazing about this, if you look at chapter 2 of Nehemiah, the precise date is given. Here's your question, Tom. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And this is not a coincidence at all that the date is given. And it came about in the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had, been, I had not been sad in his presence before. Today, he was very, very sad. So the day that Nehemiah asked his request of the king, and the day the king gave him the command to go, it explicitly says was in the month of Nisan, which if you know the Hebrew calendar and if you juxtapose it with the Julian calendar, uh, Nisan is March, April. March, April. Nisan uh, is, overlaps March and April. In the 20th year of Artaxerxes, now historians know when Artaxerxes came to power. They, they have these records of the kings and records of the, of the Persians. And so the 20th year of Artaxerxes is no mystery to historians. That was the year 444 B.C. So the command to restore Jerusalem was given in the month of Nisan, or March-April, of 444 B.C. This is not a controversial point. Um, no one disagrees with this, secularist or Jew or Christian. Nisan, 444 B.C. And so we have event X. And so I want you to put it in your mind now 
that the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given in March, April, or Nisan of 444 BC. Now, what is why? Let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. What is the, the, the why event here of the prophecy? And it's very clear in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So the why event here is Messiah the Prince. Mashiach Nagid in the Hebrew. This means the anoint, well, it means anointed ruler. The word Nagid is used of the rulers of Israel, whether they be a high priest or whether they be a king, any ruler. Uh, remember, when we read the word prince in the Old Testament, let's not think like Anglo-Saxons and think that, or Europeans, that a prince is kind of under a king. We're thinking of just a, a chief, a ruler, someone at the top. And so, an anointed ruler. David was called the Nagid. Saul was called the Nagid. Aaron was called the Nagid. Moses was called, any ruler is called a Nagid or a ruler. An anointed ruler. There is no article in the Hebrew, so it's, it isn't technically the Messiah, the prince, but articles are not usually used in the book of Daniel. Uh, many times in the, in the Hebrew Bible, actually, they'll just omit the article, even if it is referring to a specific thing. It's just a style of writing. So the absence of the article doesn't necessarily mean it's not the Messiah at all. It could very well be the Messiah. The Jews before Jesus even understood it as the Messiah. That's why they were all looking forward to the Messiah in the time of Jesus. There was a huge expectation of the Messiah at that time. And verse 24, the making of atonement, the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, the sealing up of the prophecy and the vision, the anointing of the Holy One, all point to the fact that this is in fact talking about the Messiah and we have every reason to expect the Messiah to be mentioned in this prophecy based upon verse 24. Basically, all Christians understand this to be Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews will say, no, you're, it's not the Messiah, but it certainly could be. And as we'll see, this will become much clearer as we look at the time, as we look at this Z time uh, period. So all Christians understand this to be, basically all Christians, because there are some liberal Christians that do not, but basically all Christians understand this to be Mashiach Nagid, the anointed ruler, is Jesus Christ. This will become clear. Now what is Z? What does verse 25 say? From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagid, or until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now what Christians argue here, and what I will argue this morning, is that this period of time, seven weeks and 62 weeks, which of course if you add those together is 69 weeks, that's one week short of the 70-week period. 69 weeks, and 69 weeks of years is, if you put that into uh, more common language, 483 years. So, what Christians argue here, and what I will argue this morning, is that this brings us precisely to the time of Jesus. From the issuing of the command to rebuild Jerusalem in the Nisan of 444 BC, 
and you go ahead 483 years, it brings us precisely, not maybe, not fudging, not it's a symbolic number that kind of fits, not in the ballpark, precisely at the time of Jesus, if you go forward, if you just add it forward from X, or if you go backwards from Y. Start in the time of Jesus and go 483 years backwards, and where do you land? Precisely at 444 BC, which makes this a remarkable prophecy. Now, the, now, you'll notice that this figure is divided in two, seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the Jews will try to, to get away from the implications that this is talking about Jesus by saying, oh, you Christians are reading this wrong. It's not supposed to be read as seven weeks and 62 weeks together. How we're supposed to read it is like this. Put a period after seven weeks. Put a period after seven weeks. So it reads like this. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, period. Seven weeks, not seven weeks and six, 62 weeks. There'll be seven weeks. That's 49 years. And then you finish the sentence this way. And for 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So by putting a punctuation right between seven weeks and 62 weeks, they are seeking to avoid uh, the implications that the Messiah comes after 69 weeks. There's a lot of problems with this. First of all, 49 years from the decree of Artaxerxes in 444 BC, we don't know anything about that year. There's nothing significant that we know in history that happens in that year. It's a blank. And so we guess. And Jerusalem was not being built for 62 weeks, for 434 years. That doesn't make any sense to say that for 434 years, the plaza and the moat will be built in distressing times, right? And this is what, as I said earlier, the Jewish people don't fit all the details well, and they often say, I don't really know what this text is really all about. I don't, I, some people think this, some people think I don't know. But the, the Christians are reading it wrong when they say the seven weeks and the 62 weeks are supposed to be together. Now, brothers and sisters, there is no punctuation at all in the Hebrew text. And the punctuation was added later by rabbis. And they put that punctuation in there, as many people believe, in order to split that text up. Some Christians will argue, well, even if you put the, t the punctuation in, it doesn't change anything at all. And I tend to agree with them as well. But in the original Hebrew, there is no punctuation. This could be read just as well 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Just as grammatically well. But we might have to ask, well, why then divide it? Why not just say 69 weeks? Why say seven weeks and why say seven weeks and 62 weeks? And there's some different explanations of this. Uh, some propose that, because remember, there's nothing at that 49 year mark that is significant in history. Nothing at least that we know. We have to speculate. Some say, well, maybe the, the angel Gabriel or this prophecy is just sort of establishing the Jubilee motif that, you know, bear in mind that after every 49 years there's a Jubilee and let's just keep that in mind and move on. Some scholars think that. Some scholars, probably more scholars think, well, it's, it's likely that after 49 years the city, the wall was finished. So from, from the command to restore to the Messiah, there'll be 
seven weeks and 62 weeks, certainly, but we divide it up because the city took about 50 years to finish. But again, we don't know anything at that time. So we're just speculating. Another will say this, that 49 years after 444 BC, perhaps that was the end of the Davidic exilarchs or the Davidic rulers. If you go to the book of First Chronicles chapter 3, you'll notice that there's a list of Davidic rulers after the captivity. Like they, they list all the kings of Israel, all the kings of Judah, of David, right up until the time of Nebuchadnezzar smashing Jerusalem. But they continue to list them afterwards, even after the captivity. They list, and then so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And, and these are the rulers. But then it stops. And it's, it's possible that 49 years after the decree to rebuild, maybe that's when they stopped counting or it stopped, the Davidic rulers stopped ruling in Israel because they did stop ruling in Israel. There wasn't David, sons of David reigning in Israel being governors and taking care of the affairs. We just simply don't know. But I want to emphasize this point. However you slice this, however you punctuate it, verse 25 and verse 26 brings us to the first century, no matter how you slice it. And the Jews themselves acknowledge this. Because even if they put a punctuation there, there's seven weeks, and then there's 62 weeks. And after 62 weeks, it says in verse 26, look, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the Jews themselves know this is talking about the first century. So no matter where you punctuate this, this prophecy does indeed bring us to the days of Jesus. The Jews will say, well, maybe there's two messiahs here. There's a messiah that comes after the 49 years and there's a messiah that comes after the 483 years. Christians will say there's a one messiah. It's talking about the same thing. Regardless of how you take it, we go to the first century and we expect a messiah, a Mashiach. And I don't think there is good warrant at all, historically or exegetically, to put a punctuation there anyway. However you slice it, it brings us to the first century. And here's the amazing thing, brothers and sisters. It doesn't just bring us to the first century. It brings us precisely, exactly to the last days of Jesus Christ. And this is where this prophecy gets really amazing. And no one can honestly ignore how interesting this is. Because whether you are a secularist or not, whether you are a Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus or not, one thing that can't be denied is that this prophecy precisely gives us a chronological date from the X to the Y that lands us right at the last days of Jesus Christ. There is no way that you can worm your way out of that. There's one objection that's given, actually, but it's easily dismissed. The objection is, look, if you count 483 years from 444 BC forward, you land at about 39 AD. And that doesn't work for you Christians. You landed about 39 AD. Jesus is long gone by 39 AD. So you're going to have to smudge some numbers, you Christians. 483 years from 444 BC does indeed land us in 39 AD if you are counting a year as 365 days, which is the way we typically count a year today with all of our modern understanding of calendars and things. So yes, if you count 365 days 
in a year, 483 years from 444 BC, lands you past, uh, beyond Jesus, it's true. But what's important to see is that the Jews and many ancient people didn't count a year by 365 days. They counted a year by 360 days, uh, which, which has to do with the lunar calendar because they counted a month as 30 days and they counted a year as 12 months. So when you count it as 360 day years, and to give you some proof of that, you remember how we've talked about three and a half years and how that three and a half year period the Bible talks about corresponds to 1,260 days or 42 months? So in the book of Revelation chapter 12, three and a half years is also equivalent to 1,260 days. If you have a calculator, that'll, that'll show you that the Bible's thinking in terms of 360-day years. 1,260 days is only three and a half years on a 360-day calendar. Everyone follow me on that? And there's other proofs as well that commentators will give from Genesis through the Old Testament how Jews would count 360-day years. And here's the interesting thing. When you count 483 years from X using 360-day years, it lands you, guess where? When you count from Nisan or March, April, 444 BC, and you count 483 years in the future using the 360-day year, year that they would have been using, it lands you exactly at Nisan, March, April of 33 AD. This is not controversial or disputed. And what's very interesting is that according to the best scholarship of the dates of Jesus, Jesus Christ died Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, Nisan 14. Okay, so according to the best scholarship of when Jesus died, Jesus died in Nisan of 33 AD, which is exactly 483 years from Nisan 444 BC. This is amazing. And not only does this prophecy bring us right to Jesus' final days in that last month, in verse 26, the prophecy goes on to tell us that the Messiah will be killed. He'll be cut off and have nothing, it says here in verse 26. Cut off clearly means he will die. It's actually a, it's a nasty way of death. It's not telling you how you'll die, but it's a nasty way of death because it's not just you die in the Lord. It's you die as a bad person. God is the one who's punishing you. That's what the word cut off means. It's God removing you and God wiping you off of the face of the earth. God treating you as an unrighteous person and as a sinner. And he'll have nothing, meaning that when the Messiah will die, he will have nothing really to show for himself. He'll have died and it'll appear that there's nothing he has. I believe this is a clear reference to the fact that Jesus Christ died as the king of the Jews with no kingdom in Israel. Even though everyone was expecting the Mashiach Nagid to rule, he died and he had nothing, no kingdom in Israel. And then verse 26 goes on to say, not only will the Messiah die, and this is a fascinating prophecy, and that he'll have nothing, which corresponds to Jesus, but then it says that the temple and the city will be destroyed again. An amazing prediction of what happened in the first century, which even the Jews themselves acknowledge that this is what Daniel is talking about. 
Now, I would like you to notice something important in verse 26. It tells us that after 62 weeks, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. You notice that? That's why I have the cross outside of the set of the Z time, outside of the 483 years. It doesn't say during the 60, during the 430, 83 years, Jesus will die or Messiah will die. It doesn't say right when the 62 uh, right when the Z period is coming to an end, the Messiah will die. But it's, it clearly says after the 62 weeks, Messiah will die, which means Jesus did not die during the 69 weeks. So that means the end of the Z period of time must be before the day of his crucifixion. The end of the Z period of time must be before the day of his cru- crucifixion. Now the question is, how far before? If you begin with Jesus' crucifixion, Nisan 14 of 33 AD, and you go backwards in time, 483 years, you land not only just in the month of Nisan 444, you land at Nisan 5444, the fifth of Nisan, which means we can't go back very far. We can't push time period Z before the crucifixion very far, because if we do, that's going to mean that Artaxerxes gave the command at a time that he didn't. What we have in the book of Nehemiah is Artaxerxes gives his command to Nehemiah in Nisan of 444 BC. Do you see what I'm saying? So if we, if we go back, we hit the fifth of Nisan. We only can go back four more days, and then we're not really in Nisan anymore, right? So Nehemiah doesn't tell us the day Artaxerxes gave the command, but it can't be it can't be later than five Nisan, otherwise, it, you know, the crucifixion would fall within the 69 weeks. But it can't be earlier than Nisan one, otherwise, Artaxerxes, you know, that's not the month that he gave it in. So we can only go back four days. Is there anything in that time period in Jesus's life? What happened in the last four days of Jesus's uh, life before he died? What an amazing window we have. And if you go back four days, Nisan 10, 33 AD, we hit Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he presented himself as king. And if you remember, most of Jesus' life, many scholars point out the messianic secret. That Jesus didn't want to broadcast that he was the Messiah. He's always telling people to hush up about it. He was always slipping away whenever any talk of his king, kingship came up. But on that day in Nisan 10 of 33 AD, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, fulfilling that prophecy in Zechariah, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, and everyone was praising him as the king, as the son of David. Jesus didn't rebuke them. In fact, he said, it's, if they don't sing, then even the stones are going to cry out. This was Jesus' presentation of himself as king to Jerusalem. And for that reason, many scholars believe that the Y event is the triumphal entry. And just after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Whatever way you slice this, brothers and sisters, it's fascinating to see that from the going forth of the command to restore Jerusalem to the triumphal entry and the death of Jesus was precisely the exact amount of time that Gabriel told Daniel that it would be. 
And that is frankly astounding. And you can see why the secularists and the Jews want to obscure this prophecy, even though they cannot do it reasonably, and they must turn a blind eye to the prophecy. Brothers and sisters, we can be absolutely confident that this is a supernatural book and that Jesus Christ is the Messiah as the scriptures foretold. And you don't have to only use Daniel here to see that. But Daniel gives us one of the most powerful proofs of the supernatural and of the Messiahship of Jesus. It is the scripture that is our sure foundation, Peter tells us in his letter of 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 19, he tells us, look, I saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there when he stopped looking like a human being. And yet, I want to encourage everyone, Peter says, that we have something even more sure than the experience that I had in the voice speaking from heaven and the burning in the bosom. We have something even more sure than that. We have the more sure word of prophecy, which old men in the past didn't speak on their own accord. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak of the times that the Messiah would come, his sufferings and his glory that would follow. We need to see that looking at prophecy like this is not some modern Christian futurist practice that, you know, evangelicals do without warrant, but that God himself wants us to do this and the prophets have spoken for our certainty and for our confidence. And this is a thoroughly biblical and Christian thing to do to look at scripture and prophecy and to study these things. I found this wonderful poem by Emmanuel Cronenwet, a Lutheran minister, about the word of God. We have a sure prophetic word by inspiration of the Lord, and though assailed on every hand, Jehovah's word shall ever stand. By powers of empire banned and burned, by pagan pride rejected, spurned. The word still stands, the Christians trust, while haughty empires lie in dust. Lo, what the word in times of old, of future days and deeds foretold, is all fulfilled while ages roll, as traced on the prophetic scroll. Abiding, steadfast, firm, and sure, the teachings of the word endure. Blessed he who trusts this steadfast word, his anchor holds in Christ the Lord. Amen? I would encourage you all to study this. See for yourself the opposing views. And I trust that you'll come to the same conclusion that I have, that the secularist and the Jewish position simply don't do justice to the exegesis of this text, and they're driven by faulty presuppositions. We can be absolutely confident of, the, of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who came into this world to die for our sins and to save us and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to atone for our iniquity. Our confidence in Christ is founded firmly on the prophetic scriptures of God. As Stonard says, Christ is the substance of this prophecy, and that's what makes this prophecy so controversial. You could argue unreasonably about it, or you can come to Christ, your greatest need, 
for he alone can save you and take away your sins and give you the life that you want and that you need. You can argue or you can come. But one thing we can be sure of, Christ has come. He has done it. He has actually died for my sin and for your sins. God's word gives us the unshakable hope throughout all of life's ups and downs that Jesus Christ died to save us and that we have certainty of salvation and of the knowledge of God in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the prophetic scriptures. Forgive us for spurning them and making light of them because our culture and the academics who are secularists think that's silly to do. Lord, may we boldly proclaim your son Jesus Christ and his coming at just the right time. May we pick up the sword of the word of God and speak to our generation with the certainty of your scriptures, Lord. And most of all, God, we thank you for doing this for us, a gift that you didn't need to do. Thank you for loving us and sending your, your son to die for us so that we might have hope in him. We praise you, almighty God, in Jesus' name. Amen.